you're taking down notes, the title of my message tonight is There is Work to Be Done. There is work to be done. And we're going to, actually, we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 5, just for the sake of context. We'll begin in verse 20, and we're going to take it all the way to chapter 7, verse 1. Um, but before we do, I want to do a quick review with all of you. Maybe you're joining us for the first time tonight. We're kind of right in the middle of this series through the book of 2 Corinthians. So the Apostle Paul... Um, had a very interesting, dynamic relationship with the church in Corinth. Um, In the book of Acts, chapter 18, there is the record of Paul planting this church. And this church was very special to the Apostle Paul. Um, He viewed them as his own children. And this particular book, 2 Corinthians, we, we call it, Second um, Corinthians, but really it's, it's one of four letters that Paul sent to the church in Corinth, including a in-person visit, which he refers to in Second Corinthians chapter 2 as the painful visit. <laughs> so there was a little bit of drama that went down between Paul and the church in Corinth, but we'll get to that in a few moments. Corinth was the third most important city in the Roman Empire. It was a growing metropolis. It was a popular retirement destination for Roman soldiers and wealthy families. It was beautiful. It was a port city. It was affluent. Um, It had a lot of culture. It was a place of the arts, sports, like everything you can imagine. It's similar to like a Los Angeles. And um, so it was wealthy. But of course, just like every city in all of human history, Corinth had its, uh, its dark side as well. Um, Corinth really was the place of the self-made man. Um, if you were, uh, if you were pr- full of pride and, and, and individualism, you would make it in a city like Corinth. And so during Paul's uh, relationship, kind of rocky relationship with the Corinthian church, Paul received a report that... There were some struggles taking place in the church of Corinth. There were some, they needed some behavior modification. They were struggling a little bit, a little bit carnal. So Paul writes to the church, but the church in Corinth did not receive the correction very well. Rather, they questioned the validity of Paul as an apostle and minister of the gospel. Paul uh, was homeless. Uh... He was impoverished. He was regularly beaten and imprisoned. And in the Corinthian mind, they could not reconcile how a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ could suffer such persecution as Paul did. In their eyes, he was not blessed by God because of the sufferings and the trials that he endured. You see, the pride and the individualism of the Corinthian culture had crept into the church. So, Paul seeks to correct this. And here in 2 Corinthians, the first seven chapters, Paul is seeking to reconcile his relationship with the Corinthians and reassure them of his love for them. You see, Corinth and the Christians there, they wanted proof of Paul's credentials. And earlier in our series, in chapter 3, we looked at how Paul says to them, you are my credentials. The fact that you're even alive and planted and, and well, you are my credentials before the Lord. You are proof that God has called me to the work of the ministry. Now, last week we had our magnifying night, which was amazing. Amen. Who was there last week? It was an incredible night. Yes. Oh man, it was so sweet in the presence of the Lord. Um, but two weeks ago, Pastor Rob gave a great message out of 2 Corinthians 5. And so I just want to... Not give a quick recap, but just highlight two things that are really beautiful in that chapter. In in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see the beautiful truth that Paul speaks to the church. That for those who are in Christ, you are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Can I get an amen tonight? For all of us here in this room, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. You are a new creation in Christ. The old things have passed away. He has removed your sin. As far as the east is from the west. 
So we can take great comfort and, and uh, encouragement in that tonight. The second beautiful truth in 2 Corinthians 5 that, that Pastor Rob talked about is that we have been, by the blood of Jesus, reconciled to God. So where there was once disagreement, disunity, discord, now there is peace Now there is wholeness. Now there is love and relationship. We have been reconciled to the Father. And what we're going to see tonight here in chapter 6, Paul is going to keep with that momentum. And he's going to continue to expound on how we live out the truth of reconciliation as believers. So we've been reconciled to the Father. That's beautiful. But how do we live it out? What does that look like? Well, that's what we're going to see tonight. So what I want to do is we got, a pretty, uh, we got a pretty beefy passage in front of us. So we're going to break it up into three parts, okay? We're going to see Paul's plea, Paul's paradox, and Paul's passion. Paul's plea, Paul's paradox, and Paul's passion. So let's jump down to chapter 5, verse 20. We're going to begin there just for the sake of context. And we will read to chapter 6, verse 2. So here's Paul writing, now then, in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Can I get an amen tonight? That is so good. Okay, verse one, Paul continues. Remember, this is a letter. So in verse one, Paul says, we then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Verse two, for he says, In an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now, everybody say now. Now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray one more time together. Father, a few moments ago, we were singing how we need a fresh wind. And Lord, that is so true. We desire right now, God, that we would experience a fresh wind, a fresh outpouring of your spirit right now. My prayer, Lord, is that you would overlook my inadequacies as a man and that you would use me as your mouthpiece to speak. Holy Spirit, that every ear here in person and every ear online tonight would hear from you and that every eye would see Christ exalted and magnified as we look to your word. We thank you that your word is alive, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, would you pierce us? Would you cut us deep tonight, Lord, and get your word into us, Lord, so that we can live in such a way that glorifies your name and makes an impact in the world around us. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. And everyone who agrees, say, Amen. So we're breaking this chapter down into three parts. The first part is this. We're going to see Paul's plea. So in these verses we just read, Paul is expanding on the work of reconciliation and how it is lived out by assuring the Corinthian church that they had been, point number one, reconciled to identity, relationship, and mission. The work of reconciliation in our lives through the blood of Jesus reconciles us to a new identity. We are in Christ. It reconciles us to relationship. We have communion with him. And it also reconciles us, and this is part of our identity, to a mission, to expand the kingdom of God. So Paul is building on the idea of being a new creation in Christ. He says um, at the end of chapter 5 that we are ambassadors of reconciliation. What Paul is saying is this. Look, guys, look, Corinthian church, we are partnering with Christ. That's amazing that God invites us into the work to be his ambassadors, to be co-laborers with him, not to accomplish our agenda. agenda. God doesn't help us to accomplish our mission. No, God invites us into his mission to walk alongside him. So Paul is saying we have been reconciled to someone and something much bigger than ourselves. There's work to be done, Paul is saying. And I think it's important for us to understand that what we do is not our identity. Hang with me here, listen. What we do is not our identity. Rather, our work for God and partnering with him is an overflow of our identity as sons and daughters, co-laborers and ambassadors for him. 
God wants us to understand that our work as ambassadors and co-laborers with him is a part of our identity with Christ. Do you get that? God has reconciled you to an identity. He's called you as a son and a daughter, but he also calls you a co-laborer. It's a part of your identity as being in Christ. God has reconciled us to a new identity, a relationship with him, and a mission for him to expand the kingdom of God. God wants to partner with us because he just loves us that much. He wants that relationship with us. You know, it reminds me of my relationship with my kids. There are times at home when I will invite Liam and Ada to come and do chores with me. Okay? Whether it's the dishes or we go outside and do yard work or we're raking up leaves. Now, do I need their help? Do I? No, Liam is four years old. He's almost four and Ada is two. And most of the time they just get in the way. (laughs) Okay. The reason I ask them to help me, the reason I invite them in to what I'm doing around the house is because I want a relationship with them. And even though they may get in the way and start jumping in the pile of leaves that we rake up and spread them all over the yard and make yet another mess, there is nothing like looking down at their faces when they get that spark of joy after they have accomplished a task. And they look at me and they say, Daddy, we're helping you. Daddy, look at me. There's nothing greater than that as a father. I invite them into the work to partner with me because I just want to see them smile. And I want the relationship. And I can't help but think that that's how our Heavenly Father looks at us. He doesn't really need us. (laughs) As much as we hate to hear that, He doesn't. He's God. He's sovereign. He's got it all together. No. Friends, He wants us. Can I just speak that over your life tonight? He wants. He wants you. He wants you to partner with Him. Because He's just that much in love with you. And he wants you to experience the joy of being a co-laborer with him, an ambassador for him, and watch his power work in you and through you to the glory of the Father. So Christ has reconciled us to identity as sons and daughters to have relationship with him while on mission because he loves us and wants to show us how powerful he is. Point number two under this idea of Paul's plea is, check it out, it's the title of the message, there's work to be done. There is work to be done. Look at the end of verse one with me. Paul says this, I plead with you, Corinthian church, not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Paul wants the church in Corinth to recognize that they have been given a mission, that there is work to be done. Look, Christianity isn't a cruise ship. It's a battleship. Christianity is not a cruise ship. It's a battleship. We don't get saved and then hit cruise control. God calls us to partner with him in the mission of reconciling the world to himself. So what does it mean to receive the grace of God in vain? It means to receive the goodness and favor of God yet to hinder the work of grace in one's life. I like how David Guzik puts it. He says this, God's best for our life is never a state of ease and comfort and indulgent inactivity. I like that. Indulgent inactivity. Even if we did all those things together with him, God wants us to be workers together with him. Not couch potatoes or pew potatoes. (laughs) Pew potatoes. That was funny. What's the point? I am in no way suggesting that we somehow work for our salvation or for the grace of God. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Paul's saying. Rather, what Paul is saying is that to receive the grace of God in vain is to receive the forgiveness of God and to be reconciled to him, but then just to stay there. God's grace is not only the forgiveness of your sins, it is the enabling power in you and through you every day to make an impact for the kingdom of God, for the glory of the Father. To receive the grace of God in vain is to get saved and then pause and hit cruise control. And I can tell you right now, if 2020 has shown us anything, there is a lot, and I mean a lot, of cruise control Christianity happening right now. A lot. 
And I don't mean that to bum anyone out. But what I'm saying is that we are called to be on mission. There is work to be done. The third point under Paul's plea is this. There is no time to wait. There's no time to wait. Read verse 2 with me. For he says, and, and Paul's quoting from Isaiah 49 verse 8 here. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Church, hear what Paul is urging the Corinthian church. There is no time to wait. Today is the day of salvation. I like how the message version paraphrases it. It says, don't frustrate God's work by showing up late. (laughs) Don't be late to the party. Every day with Jesus is the now day. Don't look back. (laughs) Don't worry about the future. You know, too many Christians are concerned about the past. They say things like, well, I used to do that, or I used to serve in this capacity, or I used to, God used to use me in this way, or I used to be on a street witnessing team, or I used to serve in children's ministry, or, you know, I used to, you know, you know go out and, and, and witness to my, to my coworkers, and that's what I used to do, but gosh, I'm, I'm old now, or I'm tired, or I think I've, you know, I've hit retirement as a Christian. No, don't look back. Today is the day. Too many Christians right now, particularly in my generation, are distracted and delayed by the future. They say this, well, you know, one day I'll get there. As soon as I get my 401k set up, as soon as I get that house, as soon as I get married, I'll start following Jesus or serving in the church. Or I want my 20s to be an adventure. I want my, I want my, there's no greater adventure than serving the Lord and partnering with him. Are you kidding me? Don't say, don't delay. Don't wait for the future. Now is the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation. There is no time to wait. With Jesus, today is the most important day of your life. What's the most important day of your life? Right now. Jesus said to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. It's not going to add to your life. It's only going to subtract. Worry subtracts. Faith and trust in Jesus adds. And when we're living in the moment, God can use us in radical ways. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. There's no time to wait. Guys, God wants us to go from glory to glory. God desires that our relationship with him would become bigger and better and brighter. Today's the day. So after Paul's plea here in these first verses with the Corinthians, we see Paul take a bit of a turn. Now you'll remember that in this letter, in chapters 1 through 7, remember Paul is seeking to reconcile with Corinth. He he has commended himself. He was disregarded by the church as an apostle. He wasn't... He was ignored because he experienced poverty and hardship, homelessness and... He wasn't the greatest public speaker. And the Corinthians thought less of him because of these things. They questioned his apostleship. And as I mentioned earlier in chapter 3, he turns to them and he says, he makes the appeal, you're my credentials. Look at you now. You are evidence of God's handiwork. Well, right here in chapter 6, Paul is going to take a turn in this section and he's going to give a glimpse into what the ministry of reconciliation can often look like. He's going to give us a glimpse into what qualified him as an apostle. Some call this section, some Bible commentators and teachers call this section we're going to read Paul's resume. Uh, John Corson calls it the, the school of hard knocks or like the seminary of difficulty. But what I'm going to call it, this section is Paul's paradox. And that's going to make sense when we get to the end of the section, I promise. But let's read verses 3 through 10. Here's Paul's paradox. He continues, We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. In much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, 
and labors and sleeplessness and fastings by purity, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Verse 8, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. So the first point I want to allude to here in Paul's paradox, this section, is found in verses 3 through 4. Paul's first qualification as, a, as an apostle was patience. Look with me in verse 4. But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience. So that, that Greek word here is the, is the Greek word hupomeneo, which has the idea of endurance instead of simply waiting. Why is that important? Well, because sometimes we think of patience as some kind of a passive waiting. But it, the patience that Paul is talking about here, as he approached the ministry of God, the ministry of reconciliation as an ambassador, the patience that Paul refers to here is much more than just some kind of passive waiting. It is a patience of endurance, expectation, and victory. That Greek word, hupomeneo, carries the idea that of expectantly waiting and triumph. Paul's saying, I have approached the ministry with much patience. That's my first qualification as an apostle. I've been patient. And then in this section, Paul gives us three categories of affliction. Did you notice that? Three categories of affliction. He mentions the affliction of life, the affliction of the world, and the affliction of laboring for Christ. And we're going to break those down. So Paul's saying, I'm approaching the ministry with much patience, with hupomoneo, as a victorious overcomer, patiently enduring. The first set of afflictions, point number one under Paul's paradox is this, the affliction of life, mentioned in verse four. Read with me. He says, in much patience, check it out, in tribulations, everyone say tribulations. In needs, everyone say needs. In distresses, everyone say distresses. These three things, trials, needs, and stress, they were a part of Paul's training and approval process as a minister of the gospel. You see, Paul was a normal human being that experienced the same type of stresses that you and I experience on a day-to-day basis. The challenge for us, though, is to not succumb to the trials that life can inflict on us. The trial of a difficult diagnosis, the trial of a broken heart, the trial of joblessness, the trial of sickness or financial difficulty. When the trials and the afflictions of life come, we must follow Paul's example here in that we patiently endure, clinging to the triumph that we have in Christ. For a moment, would you look, look with me back at verse 3. Look what Paul says. He says, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. What is Paul saying? Paul lived in such a way that there was never a reason to question his ministry. He lived a life of integrity and blamelessness in the sight of God. And we as believers and followers of Christ should seek to do the same. Especially when it comes to the afflictions of life. Day-to-day life. Tribulations, trials, sickness, in need, in poverty. Friends, let me just encourage you with something. The world is watching you. The world is watching how you handle the trials, difficulties, and the stress of this life. They are watching. They're watching how you treat your spouse, how you work, how you treat your kids, how you serve in the church. And can I encourage you with this tonight? Let your life be a song of praise to God. Let your life be a song of praise, a song of joy. 
Our world needs joy. Christ's way is better. His, his life is an abundant life. We can have overwhelming, overcoming joy in the midst of life's difficulties and trials because we have been reconciled to Christ. And the world is watching us. So let's show them, let's show them how good our God is. James speaks of this in in James chapter one. You all know this. My brother, count it all what? Joy when you fall into various trials. What? (laughs) What are you saying, James? Wait, rewind that. Count it all joy when I fall into various trials? Why? Verse three, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If you're in a trial and a difficult circumstance right now, let patience have its perfect work in you and let the world watch the glorious joy that is available to you and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's talking about here. So let patience have its perfect work. You see, the way in which Paul responded to these difficulties of life, it further validated his position as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So we see the affliction of life. The second we see here is Paul describing the affliction of others. Let's pick it up in verse 5. Paul says this, In stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults. I'm probably pronouncing that word wrong, forgive me. Paul here is talking about the affliction of others on his life. We know that Paul suffered at the hands of others, yet he remained steadfast in the work of the ministry. But I want us to notice something. Notice that these afflictions are plural. (laughs) That's right. I'm going to say it again. I don't know if you guys caught that. Paul is describing a plurality of afflictions. Stripes. Beaten to the point of death. Multiple imprisonments. And tumults, like fights. <laughs> Physical fights. And remember, this was one of the reasons why the Corinthian church doubted Paul's apostleship. Because he experienced these things. But what Paul is saying is that it's not my position or prestige that qualifies me. It's the grace of God that has sustained me in the midst of severe persecution that qualifies me as an apostle. You know, nowadays in 2021, we may not face such brash, like physical persecution as Christians. But rather, what we will experience, and I believe what we are experiencing right now as the tides of our culture shift, is an increasing hostility toward the way of Jesus. And I'm talking about the orthodox way of Jesus. (laughs) Like the biblical way of Jesus. You can see the hatred in our culture toward Christians. The lies and the slander that come our way. The pastors who have taken a bold stance to obey and honor God in the midst of a pandemic and keep their churches open that are thrown in prison. Don't become numb to that, church. Don't get used to hearing that pastors are thrown in prison. There is an increasing hostility toward Christianity in the West. And it it is in the face of that type of opposition that we must resolve to stand strong In the love of Christ. He is our rock. He is the rock upon which we stand. You know in Paul's first letter. To the church in Corinth. He said this. I believe it was in chapter 1 verse 18. I could be wrong. But he said this. That the cross. The message of the cross. Is foolishness. To those who are perishing. The world is going to look at you. And say. And scoff. And say. Those evangelicals. They're going to they're gonna look at you with an increasing amount of hostility. Especially Christians that hold orthodox stances on sexuality, family, how the church should operate. Christians that hold to the idea that the word of God is inerrant and infallible. They're going to look at us and they're going to scoff. 
people are scoffing at. What I, I hear this all the time right now. Conservative Christianity. Quote, unquote, conservative Christianity. Like, what do you mean by that? <laughs> conservative Christianity. Like, like biblical Christianity? <laughs> like, like, Christianity that believes like a man is a man and, and a woman is a woman and that God's word is perfect and complete and we have the entire canon and there's nothing we should add or take away or, you know what, can I just say this? I'm thankful that I grew up in a conservative Christian home. I'm thankful for my parents who raised me right. I am. I am. I'm so sick of hearing people in my generation deconstruct their faith because of their horrible upbringing. I'll tell you right now. You, your upbringing in a conservative Christian home is better than probably 99.99% of people's upbringings in other parts of the world. Sorry. Just going to preach it. Gosh. All right. I don't want to digress. Sorry. I'm getting too fired up. My point is this. I'm thankful that I grew up in a home that emphasized going to church and reading God's word. I'm thankful that I grew up in a home that believed that the word of God is perfect and without error and that believed that we should preach the gospel and stay unspotted from the world. And if that means that I'm a conservative Christian, then sign me up for that. But you get my point. My point is this. The hostility toward the world, okay, the hostility of the world Toward Christ is not going anywhere. Remember, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. My point is that the hostility toward Christians is going to manifest itself in different ways. You may have the persecuted church worldwide where there's people being beheaded. The caustic Christians being beheaded for their faith in Jesus. Or you might get Christians in America that get, you know, thrown shade on social media for taking a biblical stance. It's going to look different person to person, culture to culture, nation to nation. But the point is it's not going to stop. And we must resolve in our hearts to be strong in the Lord. It does. Can I tell you, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about you does not matter. You have the approval of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who by the way is coming again to establish his kingdom on earth of which will have no end. So anyways, moving on, we see the affliction of others. The third thing we see is the affliction of laboring for Christ. Paul says this in verse five, that he has much patience in labors, sleeplessness, and fastings. So what is Paul talking about? Well, as a co-laborer with Christ, these were the trials that Paul willingly chose. Paul chose to work hard to labor out of love, to see that the church would grow and that the kingdom of God would expand. Paul was not only a great intellectual, but he put action to his beliefs and he sought to live them out with integrity in labors, sleeplessness, and in fastings. Jump down to verse six with me. Paul says, by purity, by knowledge, Right here in this section, we're going to see Paul describe the resources that he used to patiently endure with triumph. So what resources were available to Paul? Purity, knowledge, long-suffering, kindness, the power of the Holy Spirit, sincere love, the word of truth, the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. So in this section of Paul's paradox, Paul describes the resources that he used to patiently endure with triumph. These were the resources that were available to Paul and they're available to us too. I encourage you to underline these and on your own to consider how these manifest themselves in your life. What I want us to zero in on, however, is at the end of verse 7, notice the phrase on the right hand and on the left. The Christian Standard Bible puts verse 7 like this, through weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. This is huge for us to grasp. What is Paul saying? In our moments of trial, Whether we are afflicted by the trials of this life or by others, God has given us resources to be victorious. God has given us weapons of warfare. He has not left us alone in life or ministry. He has called us and he equips us for his work. And when we yield to his way, we will experience victory. 
When you submit to the will and the way of Jesus Christ, you will experience victory in your ministry, in your relationship with him. We need to realize, though, listen to this. As Paul would say, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are spiritual for pulling pulling down strongholds. So what does that mean? What I'm getting at is this. As ambassadors of reconciliation and co-laborers with Christ, we are engaged in a spiritual work, which means that the results are often spiritual and not always measured on the outside. I'll be honest, and I'm sure that any of us here in this room that have served in ministry can, will agree with this statement. That oftentimes we can experience seasons of discouragement in ministry because we are doing the work of the gospel, which is largely spiritual. Yes, there's, there's, there's physical needs that we meet in missions and, and caring for those who are sick and poor. We get that, but largely spiritual in the sense that we're going after the soul. And we don't always see immediate results when you serve in ministry. You don't always see the immediate results. If you're in a counseling you know, if you're in a counseling meeting and you're wrestling through for weeks and months with someone, you're not always going to see the immediate results, but do not grow weary in doing good for in due season, you will reap a reward, right? So we are in a spiritual battle. Our work is spiritual. The results are often spiritual. So that's going to lead us to the pinnacle here of Paul's paradox in verses eight through 11. This is really what I want to get at here in this section. Read with me in verses 8 through 11. Paul says this, By honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. What is Paul talking about. (laughs) Are you confused? Let me clarify for you. Paul here is giving two perspectives on his ministry. Ready? Paul is giving the world's perspective and he's giving God's perspective. So check this out. Through the lens of the world and measurable results on the outside, the world would look at Paul's life and what they see is dishonor, evil report, They see deception. They see Paul as unknown. They see Paul as dying, as being killed, as being poor, as having nothing. But in God's eyes, what God sees is honor. God sees good report. God sees truth. God sees Paul as well-known. God sees Paul as full of life, disciplined, always rejoicing, making many rich, even though he was poor, and possessing all things, even though he had nothing. This is Paul's paradox. But really, it's the paradox of the kingdom of God. This is what, by the way, this is what the disciples couldn't understand with Jesus. The paradox of the cross. Life in death. Joy in suffering and trials, wealth in poverty and giving all you have away. Whoever wants to be the greatest must become the least, the servant of all. This is the paradox of the kingdom of God. Oftentimes as ambassadors of reconciliation, co-laborers with Christ, the world will look upon us with pity As if we are living a life, a pious life of pain, frustration, no wealth, no friends. But God looks at us and sees us full of joy, full of life, full of wealth in him, spiritually speaking. And let me ask you a question tonight. And this might be a tough question to answer. But is this the Christian life that you envision for yourself? You see, Jesus introduces to us a new cruciform way of life. A way of life that imitates the cross. One of radical selflessness and genuine love for others. Paul experienced this 
personally, by suffering, by poverty and humility. You see, what Paul is saying is if, that, if the Corinthians disapprove of Paul, they actually disapprove of Jesus. Because that's the biggest issue here. That's why Paul brings all these up. That's why he talks about his resume. Because this life, being an ambassador of reconciliation, being a co-laborer with Christ, this is the way of the cross, where Jesus says, deny yourself. Oh, that's not a very popular message in 2021, is it? But that's the truth of the gospel, to deny yourself. Paul spoke of this in Romans chapter 14, verses 17 through 18. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. For you leaders in the room, which is literally anyone here who has any influence on anyone, you are a leader. True leadership is not about status. It's about service. That's what Paul's saying. My approval as an apostle in your eyes has nothing to do about my status, has everything to do with my service. I have laid my life down for you. I have endured affliction. I have endured trials and beatings and poverty and needs for you. And I've done it with much patience. I have hupomoneoed. I have overcome. Nobody can deny the beauty of a leader who lays down his life for the people he's leading. That's the way of the cross. That's the paradox of the kingdom of God. That was Paul's paradox. Third section we have here is this. We've seen Paul's plea, Paul's paradox. Now we're going to see Paul's passion. What's Paul's passion? Would you read with me verses 11 through 13? Paul says, Oh, Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak to you as children. You also be open. So Paul's passion here. The first element of Paul's passion are the people of Corinth. Paul's passionate about number one, people. He speaks to the Christians there in Corinth as if they were his own children. You know, one of the words that is synonymous with apostle is, is the word father. And that's what we see here with, with Paul. He's speaking to these Christians as if he was their father. Saying, our heart is open to you. We know that there was drama between Paul and the church of Corinth and that much of this letter is Paul attempting to set the record straight. And here we see him doing just that. In verse 11, Paul says, our heart is open. It's wide open to you. What Paul is essentially saying is we love you. We are passionate about your spiritual growth. We, we're passionate about being reconciled to you. I like how the message translation paraphrases verses 11 through 13. Just, just listen with me here. It's as if Paul is saying, dear, dear Corinthians, I can't tell you how much I long for you to enter this wide open spacious life. We didn't fence you in. The smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a small way. I'm speaking as plainly as I can with you with great affection. Open up your lives. Live openly and expansively. Paul is saying our hearts are open to you. And any tension, Corinthians, that you feel isn't based on how we feel toward you. We love you. Any tension that you're feeling is the result of your own emotions. Look, the problem with the church there in Corinth is that they were restricted, as Paul says here, by their own affections. And this is interesting. It wasn't that Paul didn't love them enough. It was that they loved too much. They did. Their own affections restricted them. What am I talking about? What did they love too much? Well, first they loved the world too much. Too much love for the world. Restricted by their own affections for the world. And Paul's going to deal with that in the following verses. 
but they also loved themselves too much and refused to really deal with their selfish and worldly attitudes toward Paul. So listen here. Be mindful of loving the world too much and loving yourself too much. Do not be restricted by your own affections. So Paul's passion is not only for the people of Corinth, but point number two, Paul's passion is for their purity as followers of Christ. Paul is passionate about their purity. Let's read in verses 14 through 16. Paul says this, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with, I'm going to pronounce this wrong again, with Satan, basically. What accord has Christ with Satan? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Paul says, for you, are the temple of the living God. Pause right there. Paul was passionate about the people of Corinth, but he was also passionate about their purity. And he gives a command. Do not be unequally yoked. Who's ever heard that term before? Raise your hand. Do not be unequally yoked. Okay. Some of you haven't. So I'm going to explain this. What does that mean? Well, check this out. Remember the context. Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, open up your hearts, right? He's basically saying, have an enlarged heart toward others. But now he says, but don't be attached to unbelievers. Do not be restricted by your own affections. So what does Paul mean here when he says, do not be unequally yoked? Well, let's talk about what a yoke is. A yoke is an agrarian tool. It's meant to bring two animals together for greater strength and productivity. Whether it's for you know, plowing a field or what have you, or pulling, you know, some kind of cargo. The point is this, you yoke two animals together because you want to get something done. You want to move forward, right? You want to have progress. So when there's an unequal yokage, it's the complete opposite. It's a huge mess. There's not an even pull. You don't, you're not, you're not productive. There's no progress. You don't get any work done. So Paul's saying, don't be unequally yoked. And that's based on uh, the passage in Deuteronomy 22, nine. It was a law from God that prohibited yoking together two different animals. It speaks of joining two things that should not be joined. So Paul is saying this, don't be attached to the world. Remember, the greater context here of 2 Corinthians 6 is that your ambassadors, your co-laborers with Christ, there is work to be done. There is momentum to be had. The kingdom of God is to be furthered. So don't screw it up by being attached to the world because you're not going to go anywhere. You're not going to have forward momentum in your spiritual lives if you're yoked to the world. A yoke is, it's a burden. Unequal, it weighs you down. Come, come on, we all know this. The, the law of gravity, it's way easier to pull someone down than it is to pull someone up. Who's experienced that before in their interpersonal relationships? You've been pulled down way faster than you've been pulled up. That's what Paul's basically talking about here. Of course, this would apply to marriage, relationships, friendships, business partnerships. It could be anything. You need to approach this with great caution. Do not be unequally yoked. But really, Paul applies this to any environment where we let the world influence our thinking. When we are being, conf- when we are being conformed to this world, we're not being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Remember Paul wrote in in Romans 12 verse 2 to be transformed by the, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Okay, that's the idea of being yoked. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you are attached to the world, attached to unbelievers, then you are not going to experience a transformation that Christ desires for your life. Look, being unequally yoked is bondage. Remember, it is for freedom that we have been set free. God wants us to have an abundant life. But let's be honest. Sometimes it's tempting to be unequally yoked, isn't it? Sometimes there's a pull there. Oh, but but Pastor Pete, he's so good looking. That guy. No, I'm not talking about myself. 
But Pete, like this guy I'm in a relationship, he's just so good looking. He's just a handy guy. Man, he's got a truck, all-terrain vehicle. We go, I mean, we can go to the mountain. I mean, it's just great. We have so much fun. Look, it may seem fun, tempting. It might seem pleasurable for the moment, but ultimately it's weighty and it drags us down. I've seen it over and over and over again. I've seen my own friends do this, sadly. I've done this. I've seen people flirt with the darkness. People who are full of the light of God, but slowly, surely, the light grows more and more dim as they are dragged down into the depths of destruction because they are yoked to an unbeliever. Light with darkness. Righteousness with lawlessness. Look, Christ has called us to take his yoke upon us because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The idea there in the Greek is that Jesus is just the right fit for you. He is just the right fit. Remember the broader context. Paul is saying, look, church, you have been reconciled. You've been reconciled for relationship, for mission. There is work to be done. Time is of the essence. So why would you attach yourself to people who are going to weigh you down? Why would you attach yourself to people who are going to distract you or defile you? How can you be productive for the kingdom? How can you make a difference? How can you live a blameless life? How can you seize the day if you're attached to dead weight? And Paul expands on this word picture by giving us Four analogies in verses 14 through 18. Read it with me. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Satan? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. We just, we just talked about this on Sunday morning in First Peter. It's beautiful. We are living stones. We gather together. We make up the temple of God. His presence lives with us. So why would you put idols in the temple of God? It doesn't fit. Continue. Um, as God said, I will dwell in them. Whoa. This is from the Old Testament. This is prophetic. I will dwell in them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. And they will be my people. Therefore, come out. From among them, be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Paul says, what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? The Corinthian Christians were too loving and too affectionate in the sense that they thought it was accepting of them. They thought they were full of grace. They thought they were being accepting to allow lawlessness with righteousness. To accept darkness with the light. To admit to Belial, which is another word for Satan, along with Christ. Again, I probably butchered that word, excuse me. Paul is calling the Corinthian church to radical purity and separation from the world. And he alludes to the Old Testament terminology of the temple of God, living as a called out people in verses 16 through 18. You see, church, God has saved us. He has reconciled us to himself, and he desires to sanctify us. He, des- he desires to set us apart from the world, making us more like him. That's what Paul's talking about. Christ wants to conform you into the image of his son. You are, you are, you are destined in Christ to begin to look more and more like Jesus, to be sanctified, to be separate. Paul is urging the Corinthian church to cut the ties and the influences of this world and recognize their holy calling as followers of Christ. To choose a life of purity, not passiveness. Jump with me down to chapter 7, verse 1. This is where it gets practical. Paul says, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So here, Paul coming to an end in this section, he urges the Corinthian church to purify themselves from all filthiness and uncleanness. Paul is speaking here of a self-cleansing for intimacy with God that goes beyond a general cleansing for sin. 
It is a type of cleansing that involves our own effort in partnering with God. So what am I talking about? When we place our faith in Jesus, when we trust him and cling to him as Lord and as Savior, as Messiah, we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. We are saved. We are justified, right? Just as if we never sinned. Then God brings us into a process that we call sanctification. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Sanctification is a work of progress. It, it, is, it is not immediate. Sanctification is a process that ends in glorification when Christ comes and establishes his kingdom. And we see him face to face and behold his glory, okay? So sanctification is a process. Sometimes it's a messy process. We all have different struggles in our sanctification. But what Paul is saying here is this. Sanctification involves a heart that is soft to personal sin. A heart that is willing to repent and change day by day. There are times when I make mistakes, I sin. What Paul is talking about here is to to cleanse yourself from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit. So let's break that down. Now the filthiness of the flesh, that's easy, right? That's like the people that follow Jesus in his public ministry, like the tax collectors and the harlots. The filthiness of the flesh is easily visible outward, right? Being a drunk, um, gosh, gambling, right? Being violent. That's like the filthiness of the flesh. It's outward manifestations of sin. But the filthiness of the spirit, theologians believe that that's the most dangerous, the most deadly, because that is what no one here in this room can see. Only God can see what's happening in your heart of hearts. Paul is urging to the Corinthian church to, to cleanse themselves of all acts of, of the flesh. Like, stop, just stop. Cleanse yourself, repent, change. But he's also calling them to cleanse themselves of the sin that is more devious, the sin of the spirit, the pride, the bitterness, the anger, the resentment, the lust, the anger, the envy, whatever it might be. The point that Paul is making here is that we are to be active participants in God's work of sanctification in our lives. Active in his work of cleansing us and making us more like him. We need to have hearts that are softened to our personal sin, whether it's outward or inward. We need to be quick to repent Ask God for forgiveness. Confess to a brother or sister in Christ or a pastor and then take part in the act of repentance, which is changing, right? Repentance is a change of mind. It's also a change of direction. It's agreeing with God about your situation, your struggle and saying, God, this is wrong. I repent. Help me. Confessing and moving forward. Paul talks about this in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 12 verse 1. Paul says, let us, what does he say? Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. That's what this looks like. Remember, there's work to be done. We've been reconciled for, for identity. We've been reconciled for relationship. We've been reconciled for a mission. There's work to be done. Today is the day. Now is the time. We're not promised pleasure in this life. We're not promised a cruise ship Christianity. We will experience trials and tribulations, but when we do, we can count it all joy. We can endure with hupomeneo patience, overwhelming victory. We can have a genuine love and concern for people, for personal purity. We can seek to live our lives with integrity by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to take serious ownership of our own sin, whether it's outward or inward, and live a life that makes an impact for the kingdom of God, for the kingdom of heaven. That's what Paul's talking about here in this chapter. There's work to be done. Come on, time is of the essence. We got a couple more minutes. We're going to close with this song, but I really believe as I was praying this morning, uh, I, I believe that the Lord just gave me two words tonight for those of us here. I don't know why I just closed my Bible. I actually need it open. Okay, two words, two takeaways tonight. I believe that there are some of you 
here in this room or watching online. And like Paul, who experienced the afflictions of this life, trials, needs, and stress, you right now are severely weighed down by those things. You've lost your job. You've lost a family member. You're sick. You're discouraged. You feel alone. You feel hopeless. Well, can I encourage you with at least this? You're in good company. Because Paul experienced the same types of things. But I believe that if that's you here tonight, the Lord would want to extend his righteous right hand of comfort and healing to you right now. Because he is the God of all comfort. Peace is possible in the middle of the storm. That's what we see with Jesus in the boat. Sleeping in the boat, peace is possible. And what woke Jesus up was not the wind and the waves, right? We talked about this last week in the Magnify Night. It was the cry of his disciples saying, Lord, help me. So if that's you, you can cry out to the Lord for help. We're going to have the prayer team come up. If you're on the prayer team, you can come up now. Actually, the worship team can come up um, right now. So that's the first word. I believe there are some of you here, honestly, and you're struggling with the trials, needs, and afflictions of this life. You feel weighed down. You don't feel the joy of the Lord. The Lord wants to give you a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness tonight. The second word I have is for, for the men here in this room. One of the things that really struck me about this passage was Paul's genuine love and concern for the Corinthians as his own children. Remember that a word that is synonymous with apostle is the word father. So this is what I'm getting at. We need spiritual fathers. We need spiritual fathers to rise up. More than ever, today is the day. Now is the appointed time. Older men in the room, gray hairs. Let me talk to the gray hairs in the room. We honor you. We respect you tonight. You have probably followed Christ twice the amount of time I've been alive. Seriously, I'm 27. You have walked with the Lord for a long time. We honor you. But can I encourage you with this? There are younger men that need your love and affection. They need your genuine concern. They need your wisdom. We have a generation of young people right now, my age and younger, who are dying on the inside. They are dying on the inside and they need some spiritual fathers to come alongside them and disciple them and raise them up and tell them that they are loved and walk with them through their pain. And if you feel inadequate, can I just share with you, the Holy Spirit will be strong on your behalf. But we need some fathers to rise up. I'm telling you right now in America, the tide is turning when it comes to our culture. And more and more, there are Christians who are falling to the wayside of deconstructionism and progressive Christianity. And we need fathers who are there to pick us up by our bootstraps. Maybe give us a little, you know, a good talking to. <laughs> Woo, almost got in trouble. But look, Paul lived out what he spoke of in Ephesians 4 to the Corinthian church. He spoke the truth in love with genuine concern and affection for them as as children. We need spiritual fathers to rise up. You know, we have a great men's ministry here. Pastor Steve, Sunday Night Live. Steve has an amazing heart. I encourage you to get plugged in because I know that there's some spiritual spiritual giants that attend that, that group. So anyways, if you're discouraged, downcast, if you're burdened, heavy laden, with burdens because of the world. My encouragement to you is this. We serve the God of all comfort. And you can come forward and receive prayer tonight because the Lord is so for you. He loves you so much. And if you're a man, you don't have to be a gray-haired man. Okay, you could, you could be, you know, you could be any age. But my point is this. We need some spiritual fathers, some apostles, okay, to rise up and disciple and strengthen and encourage the next generation. Because right now it's not looking so good. <laughs> it's not looking so good. So by the grace of God, we need his help. 
So um, let me pray for us, and we're going to go into a time of worship. Lord, we just love you, and we pour out our affection at your feet, Jesus. You are so worthy. We thank you, God, that we have been reconciled to you by the blood of Jesus. We've been reconciled to the Father. God, you paid the price for our sin. Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not have a relationship with you. They feel weighed down by, by the world or by their own sin. Would they see you tonight as the God who hung upon a cross, who looked upon those on the ground who had slandered, slandered you and rejected you and turned to you and you said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. God, I pray that tonight they would be compelled and convinced of their need for you as their personal Lord and Savior. They'd repent from their sin. They'd turn to you as Lord. They'd make that decision tonight. And God, as we worship right now, I pray for anyone who's heavy-hearted, would they receive the comfort of your spirit? And for any men here in this room, Lord, who are feeling the stirring of your spirit to be fathers to the next generation, Lord, would you place that burden on them tonight? In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.